Father, you know so much better than I do my weakness, my inability. My inability not only to understand your word, but to take it to heart, to believe it and to obey it myself, to reap from it all of the the warning and the promise, the conviction and the comfort that you intend. And you know, Father, much better than I, again, my weakness to proclaim your word. Apart from you, apart from your Son, the Lord Jesus, and apart from your Holy Spirit, I am nothing, and I can do nothing. But everything changes, Father, because you have made me your own, because Jesus Christ is within me. The Holy Spirit is within me. And so I pray, Father, that in the fullness of your Spirit, for the glory of your Son, you would help me, even as I preach, to take your word to heart and to preach only for your glory and the good of your people. Help us all, Lord, to believe your word, the promises of your word. And I pray that we would be strengthened with hope and become more the people of God that you want us to be, the faithful remnant who hear your word and who obey it, no matter the cost, even when statistics might speak to the contrary, that we shouldn't believe, that we should doubt, that we should give up this faith. Even when the promises to be fulfilled, it doesn't seem even plausible. I pray that we would remain the people of faith who walk in the name of the Lord our God forever and ever. Help us in this moment, O God. I pray that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your Son. In his name I pray. Amen. Let's read Micah 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah was writing during the time of the Assyrian crisis at the end of the 8th century B.C., about 701 B.C., he's writing, and Assyria is on the doorstep of Jerusalem. They will be defeated, but right behind them, Babylon will come, and they will not be defeated. They will succeed in their plans to take Jerusalem and the people of God into exile, and that is the ordeal, that is the crisis that Micah speaks of in verse 1. But remember, remember that Chapter 4 and the beginning of 5 speak of these nows. Remember 9, 10, and 11 from last week speak of a, a now that is dark and devastating for the people of God, but which is immediately followed from each now by a rejoinder, a very powerful promise of the sure deliverance of God. And Micah 5, 2 is just... it's tops. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up 
until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. And the remnant of Jacob shall be among the peoples in the midst of many peoples, like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. Your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries, and all your enemies shall be cut off. And in that day declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you and you shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you. These were the Asherah images This is the uh, fertility goddess of that day. I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. And in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. We find ourselves here in the book of Micah closing out the second round of oracles. Remember, an oracle is an announcement from God concerning judgment or salvation. And there are three rounds of oracles in Micah, each one featuring an oracle of judgment and an oracle of salvation, sometimes a mix and overlap of both of them. So we're closing out the second round. Every round begins with, hear. Hear the word of the Lord. And the message of this book is that those people, that people which hear the word of the Lord and believe his message and hope in his unfailing love will be the remnant of people that God saves, will be the flock that he shepherds forever. And so we must hear. Let me ask you, um, and this is looking for an allowed answer um, what would you say would be one of the primary self-descriptions that, that we give to ourselves as people who belong to God? What would be a, like a one-word label, a self-description, identification of, of what we are, who we are as people who belong to God? Okay, good theological words, and and I'm looking for something that's even just more basic and can be even a little bit cliche. 
Okay, saved. That's yeah, that's true. Okay. <laughs> okay. How about just believers? Uh, which is a, a kind of a word that gets thrown around a lot that uh, can become cliche, but is certainly an accurate description, a self-identification marker of who we are, what we do. We are believers, and this is what we do. We have faith. We exercise faith in God, don't we? You look at Micah chapter 5, and you've got, you've got four paragraphs here filled with elaborate triumphant, rich, loaded promises for the people of God. I believe that the message of this chapter is that God will triumph. God will triumph. He will triumph over all of our enemies without, and He will triumph over all of our enemies within. God will triumph. Do We believe it. Four paragraphs full of promises that, let's be honest, in a lot of ways don't even seem plausible. But we are in a very, very good position to believe every single one of these promises. No matter what the evidence of circumstances might suggest no matter what the statistics might predict about these things being fulfilled. Like the world says, uh, where is the promise of His coming, right? No matter what, we are in a good position to believe. Because what is more implausible to be fulfilled than that very first paragraph? that gives a very specific promise of a ruler who will shepherd Israel in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of His name and be great to the ends of the earth. What is more more implausible than that? But we have already seen 2,000 years ago a baby born into this world who had always been who was just now, going back nine months before that birth, of course, a human life. Just now, a human life. But who had always been, from everlasting and to everlasting, God. God in the flesh. Incarnate. Emmanuel. God with us. God come to earth one of us for us and our salvation. What is more implausible than that? And God has done it in Jesus Christ. And so as we move on through the rest of these promises, even though the evidence might be stacked against them being fulfilled, we must ask ourselves, are we believers or aren't we? What will we do with the promises of God? We are in a very good position to believe because God is always faithful to His Word. Every promise is yes and amen in Christ. This morning I was mentioning in Sunday school how foolish the Bible makes sin seem. 
And it really is, of course. And we were talking about this with laziness. The Bible mocks, especially in the book of Proverbs, the Bible mocks the sluggard, the, the slothful person, uh, with you know some actually downright laughable descriptions. I think there's nothing that seems more laughable as far as sin goes than the sin of unbelief. And I'll just give you two examples of this. How, how pathetic and how stupid do the people of Israel, that, that Exodus generation seem, when God has redeemed them from their 400 year captivity? He brought them out with a show of power like the world had never seen the ten plagues of judgment upon the nation of Egypt. He brought them through dry land on the Red Sea. He provided for them manna from heaven six days of the week and enough on that sixth day to last through until the the new week had begun. Water from the rock. Defeat of their opponents. When they were a weak people, every provision that they needed, the, the sandals didn't, you know, dry rot on their feet or nothing like that in that 40 year wandering, God provided for them. And how stupid do they look? When on the brink of an, the promised land, standing at the, the Jordan, ready to receive their inheritance, God is going to deliver into their hands these strongholds and the giants within them, and they say, it can't be done. And they're ready to stone their leadership and go back to Egypt. How stupid. How pathetic. Or think about the disciples in the boat on the Sea of Galilee. When the storm comes up, Certainly a, a terrible storm, something that would make, you know, veteran fishermen afraid for their lives. But Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ is with them. And obviously he's not worried. He's asleep on a pillow in one end of the boat. But they go to him and they shake him awake and they say to him, Lord, don't you care that we are perishing? Jesus rises and he stares into that storm and he commands peace. He commands, be still. And as the last of the waves just ripple up gently against the boat, he turns to them and he says, Why do you doubt, O you of little faith? Unbelief is so dumb. And, and, and Jesus in his ministry marvels at the unfaith of the people to whom he ministered. He goes into Nazareth, his hometown, and he does not do the miracles of which he has been proven capable because of the unbelief of the people, and he marvels at their unbelief. By the same token, he marvels at the faith of those who shouldn't believe, Gentile people, who show great belief in his power and his ability and his willingness to do great works of healing. And he marvels and he says, I have not seen so great faith in all of Israel. And I don't think that we see him really marveling at at anything else in humanity outside of those two things, unbelief and belief, faith and unfaith. The Bible portrays unbelief as laughable and faith as heroic. Read Hebrews chapter 11. And you'll see great triumphs of faith and great sacrifices of faith. 
There's the conquering of kingdoms by faith. There is the surviving of the den of lions by faith. And there are so many examples of faith. And then there are people who give it all up and lay down their lives. They have not inherited the promises of God laid out in His Word, and yet they are willing to uh, lay down their lives. They refuse release. They refuse deliverance. And they are persecuted to death, believing in a greater resurrection. Either way, though, whether they conquer kingdoms or they're conquered by those kingdoms, they believe. Faith is laughable, unbelief is laughable on one hand and it's heroic on the other. What will you be? Will you have faith? Will you believe in the promises of God? Let's launch here into this text in verses 5 and 6. And I believe, you know, I'm talking about statistics and evidences of circumstances being stacked against the fulfillment of these promises. Verses 5 and 6, that's... It's really one, that's the one paragraph I'm especially speaking of. It says, He, this great ruler, will be our peace. When the Assyrian comes into our land and treads in our palaces, then we will raise against him seven shepherds and eight princes of men. That seven and eight is a Hebrew formula, which means he will give us enough and more than enough. Seven, enough, seven, perfect. You know the number of perfection, that symbol and eight, <clears throat> more than enough. He will give us enough and more than enough for what we need for our defense. They shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword and the land of Nimrod at its entrances. And he shall deliver us from the Assyrian when he comes into our land and treads within our border. I believe that this promise is for all time for the people of God. Of course, it was immediate, immediately applicable because it was the day of the Assyrian crisis. Assyrian was knocking on the door of Jerusalem as Micah was writing. And the Assyrians were driven out. But Assyria here is not uh, so much symbolic, but it's, let me use the word representative. Assyria is representative of all the enemies of God's people down through the ages. And the Lord promises deliverance. But here's the thing. Assyria and Nimrod, Nimrod was the, the founder of the cities of Babel and Nineveh. He was known in Genesis 10 as the, the first, here's the first mighty man on the earth. This man built cities. This man built an empire. Not that he was a great man spiritually, by no means. He was really the antithesis of what God intended. But that's the reference here. We're talking about that land. You know where that land is? Iraq. You know what is happening to many of the people of God in that exact location? In, you know, Nineveh was part of the heart of the empire of Assyria. Nineveh right now, that's a region in Iraq, but the city itself, that's Mosul, Iraq, much in the news of late. I just read that ISIS in the city of Mosul is burning ancient places of Christian worship and crucifying within those places Christians. There are all kinds of reports coming out of atrocities being committed, but 
these specific reports seem to be pretty trustworthy and coming from credible sources. Imagine being a Christian family on the run, displaced from your home, from the city of Mosul, Iraq, the former Nineveh. That's Assyria. That's Nimrod. That's the place that God promised would the, the enemy would not succeed. It says, they shall shepherd the land of Assyria with the sword, the land of Nimrod at its entrances. He shall deliver us from the Assyrian. And they're on the run. This promise in verses 5 and 6 is not saying that the people of God will not suffer. It is not saying that we will not die. Our brothers and sisters, even now in that region, are being persecuted to horrible death. Another report that I heard recently, and this is coming again from a credible source, was talking about four people who were taken by ISIS and told to deny the Lord Jesus Christ. And they said, we love Jesus. We will not deny him. And they were brutally executed. And not one of them was older than 15. Do we pray? Do we pray for our brothers and sisters who suffer so much for the name of the Lord Jesus Christ? And in the face of all evidence that seems to be the contrary, will we believe? The Bible the writers of the scriptures were not stupid. The, the author to the Hebrews knew these promises. The people of God knew that they were going to suffer. And they believed that ultimately, although they gave up their lives, although, let me read, Jesus said, you will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance you will gain your lives. He said, you will die. You will die for me, but not a hair of your head will perish. In the end, our enemies will be defeated. In the end, the people of God will be delivered. And every single person who stands upon the face of the earth in the end will be one who has believed the promises of God and has endured to the end. None of our enemies, none of those who commit these things against the people of God will be left standing. God will defend his people. In verse 7, we begin with a time marker, with a little word, then. And I believe that Micah is now looking beyond his own immediate time and context to a future day. And I believe the description of verses 7 to 9 captures our day and who we are. Let me read these verses again quickly. Then the remnant of Jacob shall be in the midst of many peoples like dew from the Lord, like showers on the grass, which delay not for a man nor wait for the children of man. Let me pause here. 
the remnant of Jacob. This is a description, a phrase that typically we would ap- apply to the Jewish people, to national Israel, to ethnic Israel. I believe that we are part of the remnant of Jacob. And the reason I say that is because we are no longer aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, as Gentiles. We are no longer strangers to the covenants of promise. We are the Israel of God. We might not be marked out physically and ethnically as Jews, but we are in a very true sense Jews because we are Jews inwardly. Paul said in Romans chapter 2 that a Jew is not one who is a Jew outwardly. It is not that you are a Jew by circumcision that is made by hands. A Jew is one who is one inwardly. by the circumcision that is made in the heart by the Spirit, not by the letter. And so I believe that these descriptions, and specifically this one that I'm talking about, is applied to us as Christians because we have been absorbed into the people of God. We have been grafted into that olive tree, so to speak. And right now, we find this fulfilled because the people of God are scattered all over the earth. And so, notice in verses 7 and 8 that there is, there's a pattern here. In both verses, it says, the remnant of Jacob will be amongst the peoples. The remnant of Jacob shall be among the nations. Okay? Both verses say that. And then both verses give a simile describing us. It says, they will be like dew from the Lord. And in verse 8, it says, They will also be like a lion among the beasts of the forest, like a young lion among the flocks of sheep. Okay, and then notice, by way of comparison between verses 7 and 8, that there is an effect. Okay, so there is, here are the people of God. They're scattered all over the earth. This is what they are like, either do or a lion, kind of a weird, naughty, it's an atypical contrast. And, and then this is the effect. This is certainly strange, and it's not easy uh, to interpret. But I believe that what the Lord is laying before us is that we will be all over the earth either a blessing or a curse. We will either be people who speak on God's behalf to life, or we will be people who speak on God's behalf, but it will be to death. And the determining factor of which we will be is how we are received, how we are perceived as God's people. Some hear the gospel message from the lips of God's people and say, This is what I need. He, the Lord Jesus that you speak of, He is the one I need. I believe that He is Lord of all. I believe He alone is sufficient to save. And I will trust in Him for my salvation. Him alone. And then there are others who don't perceive us as that blessing. They perceive us as a threat. They respond with at the least skepticism, some with downright fear. And rather than 
welcoming us and embracing the message that we have to give would rather hunt the Christian down. So some will receive us as blessing like dew from heaven. And some will perceive us as a threat like a lion. But notice the effect. Notice the ultimate effect. It says about the, the dew, which delays not for a man, nor waits for the children of man. And then look at the lion, which when it goes through, treads down and tears in pieces, and there is none to deliver. In other words, the effect of the people of God, whether they are like a like the dew from heaven or like a, a lion that's on the rampage, the effect of God's people is irresistible. God's will will be accomplished through his people. We are an instrument in his hands of blessing or of curse, depending on how we are received. But God's will will be done. It is irresistible. Now, I want to go to 2 Corinthians to show you a very similar passage. Paul gives a completely different metaphor, a completely different word picture, but he is describing the same kind of thing as Micah is in chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Paul here is talking about um, how he has had some difficulties recently in ministry. He talks about going into Troas, and his intent is to preach the gospel, and God gives him opportunity. He says in 2 Corinthians 2.13, But my spirit was not at rest, because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. And how do you interpret events like that? How do you interpret circumstances like that? It is incredible how every single life event that Paul experienced is interpreted through the lens of Scripture. It's interpreted theologically. And so he says, this is all of God. But thanks be to God, who in Christ, I'm looking at verse 14 now, always leads us in triumphal procession. No matter where we are, no matter where we go, no matter what circumstances orchestrate you know, our, our travels and so on. He always leads us in triumphal procession and through us, spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. So Micah was describing the people of God scattered over the earth having opposite effects to different kinds of people, depending on how they were received, how they were perceived, if the message was believed or disbelieved. To one we are like dew, to the other like a lion. One a blessing, other curse. One receives us as life, the other... Uh, Received, uh, does not receive us and will experience death as the consequence, judgment from God. Paul is describing the same thing. There's a lot that could be said about this passage, but uh, let me just put it like this. We all um, associate smells, certain, we can associate the same smell with different things. 
Uh, I don't know how many times I've been with Bill in and around town. We've been talking, having conversation. Maybe we've been traveling on the road and smelled, you know, chicken fertilizer. And what is more, I mean, it's definitely worse than the paper mill. The, the smell of freshly spread chicken fertilizer is just, I remember the first time it was just uh, that I smelt it. I was like, what in the world is that? I started looking under the bushes right around here for something dead. And uh, when I talked to Bill, though, you know, talk about the nasty smell from the farm, farms or fertilizer, he says, smells like money to me. Of course, for those of you who don't know, Bill was a chicken farmer for years. And so to me, and to, you know, most people, and he's not here, but I'll say it anyway, to the, to the normal person, it, uh, it smells horrible. But to him, it meant a profit. Same smell, different association. Paul talks about how we, as believers, spread the fragrance of the knowledge of Christ everywhere. And to some, it will be received as what it is, gospel, good news. It will be the fragrance of life leading to life because they will embrace it with faith. But for others... It will be rejected. The smell of Christ to them will be horrible. It will be something to be uh, suppressed. It will be something that they just want to spray away. Something to get rid of. To reject completely. And it's the fragrance to them of death. What died? This is wretched. For those who respond that way, it leads to death. But the effect. The effect. Paul said, we are the ministers of God. Who is sufficient for these things? But we are instruments in God's hand and his will will be accomplished through us. No matter how the world receives us, we are instruments of God. And so, like Paul said, we must speak. Paul said in another place, we believe and therefore we speak. If we believe in the promises of God, if we believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, we must open our mouths as ambassadors who speak on his behalf and say to the world, be reconciled to God. And the outcome is in his hands. His will will be done. But do we believe to the point of speaking? Like Paul said, we believe and therefore we speak. Do you understand yourself to be an instrument of blessing or curse in the hands of God and his will will be done? I know we'd much rather be, of course, that instrument of blessing, life leading to life. But God calls his servants to different things. Consider Jeremiah who labored for decades with very, very little fruit. We are in the place that God chooses at the time that he chooses. To him belongs all glory and honor, no matter the outcome of the words that we speak on his behalf. Are you a willing servant in his hands? Do you believe the promises of God? And finally, And in that day, declares the Lord, he has just said in verse 9, your hand shall be lifted up over your adversaries and all your enemies shall be cut off. 
But who gets the credit for that? Do we get the credit that our hands are lifted up over our adversaries and they are cut off? By no means. Because in that day, declares the Lord, I will cut off your horses from among you and will destroy your chariots. And I will cut off the cities of your land and throw down all your strongholds. And I will cut off sorceries from your hand and you shall have no more tellers of fortunes. And I will cut off your carved images and your pillars from among you. You shall bow down no more to the work of your hands. And I will root out your Asherah images from among you and destroy your cities. I will cut off to sum it up your idols. This passage is very interesting and notable for one element especially. We typically associate idols with the kinds of things that Indiana Jones was hunting in the jungle, right? His little images of wood and stone, funny looking heads with goofy expressions, idols. That's what we think of. It is very clear from this passage then an idol is more than what the craftsman produces from wood or stone. It's more than that. An idol is not just the Asherah image, the thing that you physically actually bow down to. Even good things. He says, I will cut off your horses, chariots, and cities. Those are good things, all of them. Even these good things can become idols. What is an idol? An idol is anything that becomes the ultimate thing. If we put our trust in it, if we put our trust in our money, if we put our hope in our name, if we put all of our trust in our own goodness and efforts, all of those things are idols. Anything, whether good or inherently evil, like a fortune teller, can be an idol and must be cut off. The Lord is not saying that he's going to hamstring all the horses, burn all the chariots, and raise all the cities. That's not what he was saying. And this is kind of similar to what Jesus was speaking of in the book of Matthew chapter 5, when he said, if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. If your hand, right hand causes you to sin, just cut it off and throw it in the trash. Because he said it would be better to go into heaven blind or, or maimed than to be cast into hell a whole body. And he wasn't speaking literally. Because if you pluck out your eye, maybe even both of them, cut off your hand, even both of them, I know this is, you still have that heart. You still have that mind. How can God cut off all of our idols, all of the other objects of of trust and hope without cutting us off? That's the question. If he wants to destroy idolatry, he has to destroy us. And that's really, in a sense, what he does. That's how he cuts off idolatry from our hearts, is that the old self, 
the natural person that is given over to its own way and to sin and to idolatry is crucified with Christ, dies with Christ, and is buried with Christ. And what is raised is a new man, a new person. We can't just get rid of horses and chariots and cities and fortune tellers and all of these images and expect to be rid of worship. You will be a worshiper. You are a worshiper. This is something that was stressed in our lesson this morning. Even when you do nothing, you are worshiping. You are, it says you are never not worshiping. How true. The human heart is always grasping. The, the human heart is always uh, pursuing and always clinging. The human heart is always desiring and wanting and, and worshiping, exalting in. When we can't find something that captures our interest or something that captures our affections, the result is boredom. You ever hear, uh, you've been there, and I know you've heard, a kid in the summertime who's out of school, it's like the second day, and they're just like draped on the couch and saying, I'm bored. And immediately you say, okay, I've got this for you to do and that for you to do. You know, let's, let's write a whole list of chores, right? But what happens when there is no object of affection? There's no stimulation for interest. We get bored, and it's like that kid is being tortured. I mean, they look like they're about to die. They're in so much anguish. And I really actually think if someone had no interests, no affections, no desires, no pursuits, and just boredom all the days of their life, they would be in a kind of mental torture. It would be mental anguish because that's how the heart was made. We worship. We desire. We're always grasping and we're always clinging. And so God in the process of cutting off the idols from our hearts, killing the old man with Christ, and raising up the new man, gives to the new man eyes to see, a fresh set of what we call spiritual eyes, to perceive a greater worth than everything that the world in creation has to offer us. Eyes to see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The new man says, nothing compares. He is better. Take the world and give me Jesus. That's the faith. That's what God does for the new man. This the destruction of the idolatry of our hearts is one more promise in a chapter full of promises that does not seem plausible, honestly. But again, God has done this for us in Jesus Christ. When the preaching of the gospel at one time that God had appointed, that was, it was different from every other time. And it's not humanly uh, explainable. It was different. Your need and Christ's sufficiency to meet your need was awakened. All of a sudden, you realized 
I need him. And you were given eyes to see him and a heart to want him, to recognize that here is the treasure that I can sell everything else in my life for, and here is the treasure I would lay down my life for to gain, because to die and have him is gain. And that's what God is promising. I believe in these last several verses when he promises that he will cut off from us every vain hope and trust that the creation has to offer, whether good, like a horse, or evil, like an image, a graven image. This is what God will do. And his last promise is, and in anger and wrath, I will execute vengeance on the nations that did not obey. Everyone who refuses to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation will be judged in the end and will be under the anguish of his wrath forever. What do you think it looks like to the Christian family in Iraq? What does it look like following Jesus is worth it? Do the promises appear believable? Do the promises appear believable to you? The ruler has already been born. God in the flesh has already come. They don't seem plausible, but we are in such a position now to believe because God has done the most impossible thing. He has accomplished the wonder of wonders and coming in the flesh for us and our salvation. He lived for us. He died for us. He rose again. And all who believe in him will live with him forever. Let us believe the promises because that's what we are. We're believers. We've been saved, and we will, in the end, be saved. Let's pray. Father, we take it for granted that we're here at this time and place in history. But here we have in our hands the Word of God, complete and sufficient. We have in Christ, all we need for life and for godliness. Here we are looking back now on promises being given that have been fulfilled. I pray, Father, that the people of God would be strengthened to believe. Lord, we do not know what you will orchestrate for us in the days ahead. We don't know, Father, how difficult things will become, how much persecution will come to those who believe here in this time and place. Lord, help us to believe no matter what. And I pray, Father, that by the gift of faith, by the power of the Holy Spirit, 
the idols, the vain hopes that we have in our lives would be overcome, would be crushed, and would be cut off. Even now, in the days where, uh, in the peaceful and quiet life, so that when the day of persecution does come to us, we will be ready. We will have already been making sacrifices. We will have already been denying ourselves and taking up the cross and following Jesus Christ no matter the cost. Denying ourselves the pleasures and comforts of a temporary world. Help us to be ready for that day. And Lord, we ask for our brothers and sisters right now. There are some even now fleeing for their lives. There are some, you know them. You know the numbers of the hairs on their head. You know their tears. Every one is written in your book. We ask for their deliverance. Deliver them. Give them courage. Give them endurance. And ultimately, Father, we pray that Jesus Christ will come because he is our peace. Keep us faithful until the day that he is great to the ends of the earth. In his name we pray. In his name we trust you. Amen.